Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. Well, we are in the midst of our Lenten journey to the cross. And so this year, we are looking at the stations of the cross. So which stations are we looking at today, Steve? Well, today in the track that we've been following, and um, just a refresher for folks, that we're following a list of events that lead Jesus to the cross that are all biblical moments. And so these may or may not line up with your local parishes, stations of the cross, visuals, or something like that. But these are all moments that do come out of the Gospels. And today we'll be looking at the moments uh, across the, the Passion stories of Jesus being denied by Peter, and then Jesus being judged by Pilate, and then the scourging and crown of thorns. So that's sort of our, our plot points for today. And maybe let's back up to the, the first of those, the, the moment of Jesus being denied by uh, Peter. Yeah, so this is actually one of my favorite parts of um, the, the Gospels after, you know, Jesus has been arrested. Yeah. It's not, like, super obvious, so I'm going to preface that. So, <laughs> um, because I, I, I like, it's the image of Peter, this faithful disciple who's all conflicted, <clears throat> is following Jesus at, the, at a distance, and now he's in this courtyard kind of keeping his eyes and ears open, trying to figure out what's happening. And he's warming himself by a fire, presumably with some other folks, and a servant girl, and this is one of the reasons I like it, is because this is one of the few places that women speak in the gospel, is a mm-hmm. servant girl says to Peter, hey, you're you're one of Jesus' disciples, like, aren't you? And, and Peter goes, no, no, not me. And, um... And she retorts back with, yes, you are. You even have a Galilean accent. Mm-hmm. You, you're one of them. And he again says, no, no. And finally another man says, this man's one of them. And again, for the third time, Peter says, no, I'm not. Which, you know, and that's when the, um, the rooster crows and Peter has now denied Jesus three times. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of get it that he was probably thinking that he was doing this faithful thing. He probably wasn't meaning to actually, like, deny, deny Jesus, but mostly just still trying to keep his head down so he could keep his eyes and ears open and, and, and in doing so did deny Jesus. That is such an important insight, I think, that, like... Mm-hmm. We are so quick to make Judas into the black hat wearing villain like he did this obvious act of betrayal and then we give so much leniency to Peter when their actual actions are not not that far. There's not much daylight really between Peter and Judas at this moment. We can talk maybe a little bit later about what what the differences of the ends of their stories are um, and why we have this hope about Peter's story and the, the the sort of setting right of that relationship and that post-resurrection appearance. But yeah, it, at this moment, Peter does the cowardly thing of uh, just keeping his head down. And it, yeah, maybe he doesn't even think, I'm, being, I'm trying to deny Jesus, but more just like, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, and granted, this might be me giving Peter way more slack than he deserves, but I could see him very much just trying to stay free for another day, trying to, like, figure out what's what. Because he didn't run away, 
right? Like, he's in the courtyard, presumably not that far away from the physical location of Jesus, that he could just be trying to see, is there a way I can get Jesus out? And again, this might be me giving him way more <laughs> leniency than he deserves. Um, but he did just cut off somebody's ear to try to save Jesus exactly. from being arrested. Yeah. So, I mean... He's ready to go he, to extremes. He is a zealot. Well, see, the, like this, and this is to me, I'm glad we're raising this, too. Like, this is part of the whole flow. But, like, is that something to give Peter credit for? Or is that one more place of, like, Peter, you totally don't get it? Because Jesus deliberately tells his disciples after this, I told you not to use swords on each other. You're not supposed to be swinging the sword at people. Oh, I think he yes. still totally doesn't get it. Right, right, right. But in doing so, like, it's, it's one of those, does the ends justify the means and Peter I think is still not getting it yeah 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 and but he he thinks I think that he thinks he's doing the right thing and that he's probably going to like make a dramatic heroic Mm -hmm. save or something but he's still just kind of waiting it out and seeing what's what and but in doing so again he misses the mark and he denies Jesus and his attempt to I I think a piece of it, at least for me, what what shapes my hearing of the Peter in the courtyard part where these denials happen is how, at least in John's gospel, the story gets told, where Peter's not the only one who's there in this moment. And that Peter takes several steps to ally himself or cast himself as one of the people out to get Jesus, whereas the other disciple is... In, in, in John's retelling, there's both Peter goes out to the courtyard, follows along, and this other beloved disciple, who some people just go, oh, that's probably John, he just has one name. But there's this other disciple who follows along, and there's even a little spiel about the other disciple is the one who knows somebody in the courtyard, so he you know pulls the strings to let them in, and there they are hanging out. And there's this detail that gets me every time. It's in John's gospel, um, in the midst of this... Uh, the, the, the woman asking, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Um, John's, John, the gospel writer, says, Now the slaves and police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them and warming himself. Now it could just be that he's cold, but it also seems like he's trying to like be in that group. In, again, t- it, that I don't mean to mean to suggest that he is villainously like, yeah, now we should get Jesus, but more that like he would like to dissolve into that crowd and be as invisible as possible and that he is afraid in this moment. Or maybe, And maybe he went with the sense of maybe I'll save him and then he gets in there and he's like, I don't know what to do and he's just like, I gotta look as inconspicuous as possible. Mm-hmm. But th- there's this other disciple there who's watching this happen who doesn't go and stand around the fire who's just watching this happen too. Well, and, and, I, and I would agree with that. But also knowing that he was a zealot Right, like the whole thing of zealots, from what I remember. Well, are you thinking of the other zealot, Simon? Maybe. There's two Simons. One is Simon the Zealot, and the other is Simon Peter, who's a fisherman. No, then I, yeah, I am. I am getting my disciples confused. Okay. Yes, I am. <laughs> now, in a sense, like, it, clearly his willingness to pull out the sword makes it seem like he thinks that that's a, a possibly appropriate yeah. response at some point. Um I, and, and maybe, maybe without psychoanalyzing him too much, it's just like, if you're in a moment like this, there's no manual for how to handle a moment that's like this. You're just you know, right. running on pure adrenaline. And I guess to me, like, that's what it seems like Peter is doing, is that he's into this, he's in fight or flight. And at first, he tries fight, and that turns out not to go well. Mm-hmm. And so once he's cornered in the courtyard, denial is, is the flight instinct, is the, oh, I just got to distance myself from Jesus. And you don't exactly blame him for doing what sort of that animal part of our brain wants to do in danger, fight or flight, because uh, we're all there sometimes. But to say that 
maybe the contrast isn't really Peter versus Judas, but Peter versus Jesus. That where Peter bails out on Jesus, Jesus doesn't bail out on Peter. Not only in this moment, that Jesus doesn't like shout from the window going, that's it, Peter, I saw what you did. I'm, I'm, I'm giving, I'm going straight up to heaven. Um, but also that on the other side of resurrection, and like this is, mm-hmm. it seems to be an important like uh, post-Easter moment to, to recall, is that as John's gospel tells it, Jesus seeks out Peter after the resurrection. Peter's just about given up, right? He's, mm-hmm. He tells him, I'm going fishing. And the language suggests, like, I'm done with being a disciple. A rabbi got killed. I'm going back to the thing I knew that I was half good at. And Jesus finds them, invites them to breakfast, and then takes Peter aside and has this once for every time he denied him, mm-hmm. do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it seems like the way the story goes, by the third time Peter gets what's happening and he realizes oh, this was once for every time that I said I didn't know you, that Jesus is restoring him. And that, again, the initiative is Jesus, uh, because again, Peter's like too chicken <laughs> to do this himself. But does Peter get it? Because the first two times in the Greek, isn't it agape? And then the, the third time, it's phileo. It's a different yeah, I, type of love. I've heard people make that argument that like Jesus is settling for phileo love instead of agape love, except that you also get in the Gospels, Jesus uses phileo love as the love between the persons of the Trinity. And like, so I, okay. I don't know that it's yeah. like it's lesser love. It's only the kind of love God has for God. Well, that, oh, I guess that's pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, there, it, the, the, the Greek is ambiguous. I'll, I'll grant you that too. But it seems at the very least, part of, part of Peter's arc is, even though it seems like the cross ends the possibility mm-hmm. of reconciliation, resurrection makes reconciliation possible. And that yeah. Jesus seeks Peter out when he doesn't have the ability to, or he doesn't have the courage to, to mend fences from his side, Jesus seeks him out. Um, so the, yeah, so it, it's, 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 not, it's not a moment of great strength or faith for Peter. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can forgive him because if we were in that position, would we do any different? But maybe, and this is, I guess, p- part of the power of story, is that it can, b- we can both take a certain amount of grace for Peter and say, yeah, if I were in that spot, I would probably also chicken out too. But it forces me, at least, as when I hear this story, to ask the question of, when is silence being complicit in something terrible? Mm-hmm. And when is silence just a survival mechanism and acceptable, therefore? And I, 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 don't, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of times and situations in life where being in that gray space it's hard to know what the right choice is, but it seems like there are moments in life or in history where you have to be clear about, like, it is more important, even if this puts me in danger, to speak up on behalf of, you know, whether it's Jesus or, or whomever else. Um, and that there have been lots of times where, where well-meaning people who name the name of Jesus... Uh, have been quiet in moments when they should have spoken up. Like there, there's a piece of me that hears this story and can't help but hear that famous line of Martin Niemöller's. Right, the first they spoke, first they came for the communists, and I didn't mm-hmm. speak up because I wasn't a communist. And they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And the Jews, and and then then they came for me, and mm-hmm. that time there's no one left mm-hmm. to speak up. Um, and how often the uh, official posture of institutional church and religious professionals like me, is um, then to not speak up because it's uncomfortable or there's costs to it. Um, so I, I guess I want to let Peter off the hook, but I don't want to get so lax that I just automatically let myself off the hook in those moments. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's a, a definite case of good intentions doesn't necessarily mean a good outcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
and that, that Peter can be accepted and he doesn't get kicked out or go to hell or anything like that because he, his good intentions didn't turn out well. Right. But that, like, to acknowledge, yeah, if you have if you have the, the, the time and the ability to think through a situation, don't be just rash like Peter is. But, yeah, Peter mm-hmm. is, is has, has good intentions all, in all this. So, meanwhile, while this is all happening <clears throat> in the courtyard, Jesus is now in front of Pilate and being judged. And there's so much about this section of, mm-hmm. of this story and, and so many things that I've only uh, sadly recently realized like were, were quite illegal and not the way things were supposed to be mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether you're talking about Jesus in front of Pilate or Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, <coughs> I think both can kind of be, you know, combined into this because there's, there's a back and forth, mm-hmm. you know, where mm-hmm. the Sanhedrin mm-hmm. and Pilate and Sanhedrin and Pilate... Um, but what I found really interesting a few years ago when I was in a study um, at one of my churches about this, the timing of it all it is so against Jewish culture. It is so against even Roman culture. You know, it's at night. Um, you know, the amount of witnesses is all mm-hmm. wrong. Like, all this stuff is, is so wrong and should never really have happened, and yet it does. It seems to me like that's probably a bigger deal for the, the before the Sanhedrin part of the trial because at you would you would at least hope that the leaders of Israel or Judea had a concern for doing justice, mm-hmm. and I maybe I'm cynical, but I don't I don't know that the empire the Roman Empire had that much of a expectation over the subjugated people that it ruled over. Of, oh, yeah. Like you know, like and again, maybe maybe on their best days they're like, yes, we want to guarantee justice and prevent the ways of the barbarians. But I have a feeling too that when there is the concern of this guy's the troublemaker, we need to stop it or else a riot's mm-hmm. going to break out. There's a certain amount of um, executive authority that they would grant their Roman governors. Um, and th- I mean, that's who Pilate is. That yeah. while the, the trial in front of the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin is over the particular charges of I mean, blasphemy. They're interested in, did he say things about himself or about God that you're not allowed to say? Rome doesn't care about that. Um, Rome is more concerned, one, are you are you inciting um, violence against the rule of Caesar? And like that's the the charges that stick uh, in the in the trial against yeah. against uh, where Pilate's overseeing. And there's that moment in the story where you know, like after interviewing him for a while, Pilate's like, "Well, I don't find anything I can charge him with. Like we don't have a crime in Rome that he's done anything that we can charge mm-hmm. him with. I get you might have different rules, you religious people, but I, he hasn't committed a crime that I can charge him with." And they say, "Well, he said he was a Messiah, which is our word for a king." And and anyone who calls himself king is no friend of the emperor. And that makes a turn. Mm-hmm. And so now this is a political charge. This is a, oh, he's guilty of treason. Oh, he's guilty of sub, you know uh, subversion. He's guilty of um, something like that. And that's where Pilate seems to get upset over all this. Um, I guess I think, too, it, it's worth noting that even though sometimes people point out the effort Pilate seems to make to get Jesus off the hook, that his hands aren't really clean and all. Like, I've heard people, yeah. like, almost apologize for Pilate, like, the, like, look, he was trying to get Jesus off. At every turn, he says, he's not guilty, he's not guilty. And there's a piece of me that thinks, again, that's even worse, that by the end of it, he still gives in because it is it is the politically convenient thing to do to have this guy that you still don't think is guilty, but to have him put to death because that's easier to do. And not that doesn't give him, but he washes his hands. Literally, right. he washes I'm not, you know. As, super dramatic. Right, yeah. as, as though this does something. I mean, like, to me, yeah. that, that feels very like Lady Macbeth, sort of like, yes. no, that, that, just because you're washing your hands doesn't actually mean you're absolved of the responsibility yeah. here. Which, historically, Pilate was super, like, Oh, is that person maybe guilty? Crucified. Right, like, right, you know, right. Pilate historically was 
not a nice person. Right. He was very quick to crucify folks. So I, I, I always read this, I think I read a commentary on this once about how this might have been the authors of the Gospels and the early Christian church kind of trying to like butter up to Rome so mm. that they wouldn't end up like um, the Jews in Jerusalem where they got sacked, but more like, hey, Romans, like, we're not like the Jews. Like, we don't blame you for right, killing right, right. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, you, we're cool, right? <laughs> I, And I think, like, it, it's possible in the writing of the gospel stories that they're not trying to make more of an enemy out of Rome than necessary. Yeah. But I think the way the story even comes across in the gospels is damning to Pilate because it, it just underscores the cruelty. That In the end, he's willing to crucify Jesus not because he actually thinks justice demands mm-hmm. it, but because it's expedient. And yeah, because when it, when Pilate gets that reputation for crucifying people, it's not because, man, he's tough on justice and he really cares about putting away criminals. It's he wants to silence anybody who's in, is in opposition to Rome. And the way to rule that way is you make people afraid. Mm-hmm. And the, the fear is if you... I mean, that's the whole point of, of crucifixion being a public way of dying, that you're tortured to death on a, on a public execution stake, so that it's not just about teaching this person their lesson, but everybody else watching, if you mess with Rome and you mm-hmm. upset us, this is what we will do to you. And notice, we don't need much evidence to do it. We, If we think there's any reason at all to do it, we will not hesitate mm-hmm. to crucify you. And that, that makes it all the more cruel and unjust that Pilate uh, grants the, the execution of Jesus, even though there's no case made about why he's actually mm-hmm. uh, worthy of, of deserving death or something like that. What do you all make of his wife, Pilate's wife, in all this? I've never met her, but she seems like a very nice person in the stories. I mean, there, there's that just... Uh, in Matthew, yeah. yeah. in Matthew's gospel, you know, his wife comes to him and says, I have had a dream about this man. Like, you right. cannot kill this man. Like, this man is innocent. Do not have anything to do with him. And Pilate, you know... Yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. Well, you're a woman, so, you know. <laughs> it, Basically, it, I don't care. I guess to me, it's like one more, just one more thing piling on to make it clear, this is not a matter of Pontius Pilate really thinks that Jesus has justly done something worthy mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of capital punishment. Um, but it is very clear, this is a matter of, it is expedient to get rid of him, it will buy me some credibility with the religious leaders and they will get off my case a little bit and any chance that Pilate gets or any chance that the Empire gets to flex some muscle and show who's boss. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what he does. I even think, too, the whole scene with uh, the inscription that he has written at the top of the cross mm-hmm. that we'll get get to a little bit later. Like, I've heard that sort of spoken as, like, trying to defend Pilate. Like, when, when he writes, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and the religious people are like, don't say he's the king of the Jews, but say he said he was the king of the Jews, almost as if to, to say, no, he's we don't really think he's the king of the Jews. And when Pilate's response is, what I've written, I've written, I've heard some people say, well, that's because Pilate really begins to believe that maybe Jesus really is the king of the Jews. I don't, yeah, I don't no, think it's that no. Pilate believes at all. I think It's this, written and Pilate doesn't care how it's written or even worse that this is jesus saying this is what happens to you if you're a jew this is, this is how little i care about you mm-hmm. even if you're the king of the jews look what we do to the king i mean like this is a way of of embarrassing and shaming mm-hmm. the whole yeah. group of people mm-hmm. and saying he's the head jew look what we did to the head jew um that there's like this very very strong like we're dominating you we're the we're, we're the empire you're the subjugated people you don't get to say, look how we destroy you. And we, you know, mm-hmm. um, in ways like that have repeated themselves throughout history where whoever was the losing ethnic group or whatever, we put your head on a, on a pike somewhere just as a way of saying, don't mess with us because this is what we do to you. Um, and like in no way, if you really pay attention to the story, does Pilate get let off the hook despite the ways that yeah. we sometimes want to do that. 
so by by pilot you know writing that you know he lets Barabbas go and this has become a, apparently a tradition right you know, at the Passover time they will let somebody go and so I, I agree with you Steve like he's making a point here saying yes I'll give you this little bit of something right here but just remember even your king is yeah. You know, yeah. falls under Roman rule, yeah. and Rome will do with your king whatever yeah. Rome wants to it's, do. It's expedient to let Jesus be crucified as the king. I mean, like mm-hmm. that—that that says something about Rome is going to beat your whatever, whatever you mount against us, we'll crush you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always kind of wondered about what happens to those folks that Rome lets go for Passover. Like, how soon after Passover do you think they get picked up for another crime? Like, <laughs> right. Because I'm guessing that Rome is keeping a closer eye on them. Yeah. Especially but, someone like Barabbas who, I mean, right. insurrection, you know. Exactly. So, like, that, that always kind of makes me just wonder. Because if the people had chosen Jesus, Rome wasn't going to let some guy who said or people thought he said he was the king of the Jews, they're not going to just let him go. Mm-hmm. So, my guess is I guess her thought would be that he would be picked up fairly soon after again. So I've always just kind of wondered that, and that's going to be an unanswered question for me, I think, until <laughs> I get to heaven and can go, hey, God, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened yeah. 2,000 years ago? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, after this moment where Jesus is before Pilate, that sort of ends with Jesus finally being condemned to death and that Pilate is the one who has sentenced him because earlier in the di- in the dialogue, the religious leaders say, we don't have authority to execute somebody and yeah. he's, we think he's guilty of capital crime. So uh, Pilate not only grants that he can be crucified, which is terrible by itself, but on top of that, uh, he gets mocked by the, the soldiers and... Um, uh, and scourged and beaten and all that piece, right? So, mm-hmm. w- like, what, what what things need to be lifted up about about all this moment? I mean, it's a terrible moment in the story. I mean, scourging was a punishment in and of itself, right? I mean, it, I don't know. I, I don't know Roman culture. I'm not studied enough about Roman, you know, capital punishment. I don't know how often scourging and crucifixion went hand in hand. But I mean, scourging could kill, yeah, in and of itself. Oh yeah, um, and, and so. That's just another level of humiliation, again, for this king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, not only we're going to kill your king, but we're going to humiliate him first. Right. And I think that's a piece that's worth remembering. That, like, while we as Christians see a whole other layer about how suffering can be redemptive in some way, whatever we, whatever we mean or say about that, but from Rome's vantage point, it is in their best interest to publicly sh- show to people, this is what we do to troublemakers. So here's a troublemaker, even a troublemaker... Uh, who didn't have a whole lot of evidence against him? This is what we do to you if you get if you get in our way. And so, yeah, it's absolutely about humiliating and, and dehumanizing him. And that's part of why it seems to me like that whole mockery scene. Like nobody stops that, and of course, Pilate's not going to stop it because he doesn't care about anybody saying, yeah. "Isn't that unkind? Isn't that cruel?" Number one, Jesus isn't the Roman. Jesus isn't the he, mm-hmm. he he's a non-person as far as the Romans are concerned, and as far as what the other Jewish people watching or aware of this like. That's the, the point. He hopes they see it so that they won't think twice before crossing Rome or doing anything to step out of line, right? Um, okay, go ahead. In my further ponderings of <laughs> things I do not know because the Gospels do not tell us, is who took the time to make him a crown of thorns? Yeah. Like, who, like, what an odd arts and crafts project <laughs> to do. 
And, you know, because it's thorn, so it's going to be uncomfortable. So it was probably painful yeah. for whomever made it. Mm-hmm. And also to make it well enough that it would fit around a specific person's head and stay there and, like, still hurt them, but, like, fit. Yeah. Like, who took the time to do that? And, like, there's a piece of me that, like, it, at one level that's just, like, funny, quirky thought experiment, but there's also, like, man, that's deep cruelty. If you Like, because mm-hmm. you're going to get yourself hurt making a crown of thorns before you put it on somebody else's head. Yeah, mm-hmm. just cutting the thorns down, and, you know. Um, and to think that somebody at some point thought this was such a funny, darkly comic and humiliating thing to do that he thought, yeah, I'm... I'm okay with getting myself scraped up because it's going to be so great to mock this person and to bl- and like yeah. there's something that is hard to believe about that and at the same time there are so many instances of human cruelty like that like I think about Abu Ghraib uh, when the the war in Iraq was going on and the ways that uh, prisoners were tortured and mocked and mm. dressed up and all that kind of thing um, and the atrocities obviously during World War II and like this is yeah. like a thing we do to each other yeah, I took a whole class in college about medieval torture yeah. and army tactics yeah and so part of it is the pain piece like the scourging piece mm-hmm. but part of it is this yeah the, the embarrassing humiliating shame mm-hmm. factor of being stripped and then having this stuff put on you the, the crown of thorns and even the robe that's put on them as well this is meant, and like, and when you get swept up in something like mm-hmm. that, like, man, is it easy to start cheering for the bullies to do that? Like, at some point, I, I imagine most people have had the experience, even in childhood, of when you're swept up and there's like someone who's picking on somebody else, it's mm-hmm. easier to be quiet and to, to side with the bullies because then you don't get picked on. Mm-hmm. And if you become an enthusiastic supporter of what the bully's doing and you help out in some way, you clearly, I'm on the side of the bully and they're not going to get me now. Of course, that rarely, you know, the bully eventually changes targets. But, like, there is something, like, scary about how this pattern keeps repeating itself. And that this, mm-hmm. is not, this is not a unique moment in the sense of this is the only time humans did something cruel to somebody else they were torturing. This is just, like, humanity on display. This is what we do to each other. So why do so few depictions of Christ during this time period in his final days not include you know i'm thinking especially like crosses mm-hmm. and crucifixes that we see in churches and on necklaces you know it's always a, a very clean jesus with maybe that scar in the side that we'll yeah. get to um in another episode but like why do we just tend to like kind of gloss over yeah. this section I mean, yeah except for the passion of the christ i've never seen a jesus movie that really has shown sure because sure. it's so gruesome yeah right like it's it's one of those um I have a three-year-old, or almost three-year-old, and, um, you know, he's starting to, like, pay attention to things, and seeing religious artwork and having to answer awkward questions about, why does that man have an owie? (laughs) You know, that's not a conversation I necessarily want to have with Mm -hmm. a Mm three-year-old at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's it's, it's gruesome and makes us uncomfortable, and... And I imagine for the first several centuries of Christianity, they didn't have to do it in art because it was happening all around them all the time. And you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't get away from the reality of the gruesomeness mm-hmm. of it. And in those days, there needed to be this emphasis on, like, 
even though all we see around us is the cruelty and violence of the empire, we believe God turned this instrument of death into something where life creates is, is, is created and salvation happens. Um, and that there the emphasis and the work, the, the creative work had to be on how do we see something new out of mm-hmm. uh, this, this uh, horrible, horrible moment of torture. But um, yeah, in... in all these centuries later, we do have to deal with the way we kind of sanitize the the cross, um, and and maybe also we don't want to have to look at this is what this is what we human beings did to God. Right? That, I mean, like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. You know, we we're so <clears throat> much about like, well, if I'm just a good person, I'll get to heaven. Like that, <laughs> even within the church, that right. that's the mindset sometimes, and we forget, you know, exactly. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. We know that. Like, you know, and we get that. But, you know, nail-scarred hands and nail-scarred feet and a piercing inside, yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. horrible death. You know, it's suffocating, but it's not discouraging. It's not, but this is what we did right. to right, our right. God. And, and I think we've forgotten that over the centuries because we've not included that. Yeah. And I think that may be a piece that is really uncomfortable for us to, to bear to consider. But, like, sometimes our way of talking about Jesus died for our sins, we treat simply in... Debt language. We like yeah. we had that conversation last year about atonement theories, and we talked just about sort of in like the bloodless sort of imagery of well, I had a debt, Jesus paid my debt, and it's all about account and it's some kind of accounting or something like that, and not to say no. Part of the problem is there's something in me that when I'm threatened, my response is I would join the side of the bullies because I'm so afraid of getting picked on that if I would have been there. I probably would have gotten swept up in calling for Jesus' death as well. Or if I were given the chance to either help torture him or defend him, there's something chicken-hearted in me that would have kept quiet and said, all right, when's my turn to, to whip him? Um, the, the, yeah, w- there's something about us human beings that we do these cruel things when we're afraid. And it's that that we fall into that fight or flight. There's Again, there's that reptilian brain part of our mm-hmm. ourselves that when we're cornered responds with either I'm going to fight back or I will go along and we're just so, so afraid. And that's a piece of what it means to say Jesus died for us is that Jesus bore the worst of what we human beings have to do. And though even though I wasn't there and didn't physically scourge him, mm-hmm. there is some piece of me that thinks if I would have been there, man, it would have been awfully easy to get swept up in that. And that's part of what God has to save me from, that piece of myself that would so quickly give in and do that. Um, <clears throat> it, it reminds me, too, of the, um, the famous um, uh, sociological uh, experiments where the... the uh, people were being told that um, if you press the button, the people on the other oh, side of the yeah, wall were getting yeah, the electric yeah. shock, you know. And uh, when it was just, well, I was only doing what I was told. And, mm-hmm. and even though they were, you know, the, the participants were told, oh, the, the person on the other side, they have agreed to be in this experiment. Like, the people were just willing to continue what they thought was mm-hmm. giving people horrible, you know, shocks, even even uh, harming or, or killing people because they were convinced, well, it's okay because somebody in authority mm-hmm. told me it was okay. And again, those those sociological experiments tell me something like that the problem isn't just that Jesus ran into a bunch of cruel people who lived 2,000 years ago, but that we continue to be ruled by this. And that people who in other circumstances can be pleasant and nice and fine can also do terrible things when they either uh, are egged on or don't think they're going to get caught or can hide behind a wall or under a white hood or whatever. Yeah. It, it reminds me too about the the sheer like 
terrible horror about uh, in, in the days when lynchings were happening in the American mm-hmm. South, well, not just in the American South, and like the, the cruelty was celebrated. Like the, they, they'd make photographed postcards of people mm-hmm. posing, smiling, having a, a you know, barbecue and eating while there's a dead body hanging in a tree that had been tortured to death. So th- again, this is not just, oh, a long time ago people would mean, isn't it good we've learned to be nice to each other? Isn't it so good that we Christian folk would never do that? But there, uncomfortably... Christian folks, people who went to church that morning would then go to the lynching in the afternoon, mm-hmm. all proud to say they'd gone to church and how much they loved Jesus. Um, there's a line, I think, of Barbara Brown Taylor's who said something like that the crucifixion of Jesus isn't just a sign of the worst of humanity, but these were like our best. It was like the, the best legal system in the world was the Roman legal system. And the best, most virtuous, you know, the, the, the Jewish faith prided itself on being um, you know, morally rigorous, and it was the best of us who tortured Jesus and smiled while we did it. Um, th- there's something terrible about we have to see about ourselves if we see that about Jesus. So this is not comfortable for us to deal with, and it, we haven't even gotten to like the, the worst of the worst of it. Um, I, I guess at, while we're living through these stations, maybe it's worth us saying the reason that we Christians do pause at least to try and make ourselves in a season like this go, let's spend the time, uh, is to say we have to be able to face the, the, the worst of what we do to understand that Jesus looks at us just fully aware of the rottenness that we are capable of and mm-hmm. says, you're worth it, I'd love you anyway. Yeah. As well as... There has to be a good Friday in order for there to be an Easter morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think all too easily we want to gloss over and skip that good Friday yeah. um, in order to get to the Easter mm-hmm. and the brightly colored eggs and the dinner and um, the celebration. Mm-hmm. But good Friday has to happen yeah. first. There's a line at the end of the letter to Hebrews that stays with me too, considering these moments. There's, <clears throat> it's this weird sort of passing sentence amidst a whole bunch of other ethical observations. And the writer just says, remember those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured with mm-hmm. them. Um, and this is clearly being said when like crucifixion is a live option happening mm-hmm. all the time and scourging is happening and people are being mocked by the Romans all the time. And that there's this reality, not just of hypothetically, if somebody ever else maybe hypothetically got mocked or tortured or whatever, but when it happens, there's some things that are not okay. And to put yourself in solidarity in that moment when you have the chance to either cast yourself as Peter hanging out with the crowd, mm-hmm. keeping quiet, or to say, no, I need to be in solidarity with those who are being tortured. That's where we're called to stand because that's where Jesus stood that that's what this is about. Jesus who stands with humanity when we're the tortured ones and even when we're the torturers. Well, it's, it's not a fun journey, but we invite you to continue along with us on the rest of these Stations of the Cross here this Lent. Mm-hmm.